going through the whole sermon, uh, as you were here last week, just to remind you, because it occurred to me this morning, that if you were to see the mushroom, you will remember that I, I said there are really three ways that we come to worship God, and actually our disposition, the way we come to worship God, is of, of, of great importance. I began by saying, as Bill Capace, as it were, I began by saying that the Scripture tells us that one day every knee will bow. Yes, we fellowship, but we have our own worship time this morning. And there is coming a time where everything that has breath or has had breath in heaven and earth and under the earth and seen and unseen, everything will worship Jesus. Whether you want it or not, you will worship. You will worship. It will almost be an involuntary act. And I said to you that I wanted to view that really as, as, as worshiping as a slave, a, a sinner of your life, a, a slave of a good image. Because, of course, in, in those in those cultures then, and I suppose, and perhaps probably in some cultures today, when, when a slave worships, you lie flat on the ground, you kick the ground that the crying king walks on, you kick his feet and everything, and that's very much the disposition of a slave. And I said to you, we're not called actually on that great day. We're not called to worship as slaves and sinners. You know, we, we can worship as a servant, one who comes and, and kisses the hand of my priest. And, and we talked about that a little bit last week. You know, I said that you know, it's a good thing. Many Christians worship as servants. And, and there is, however, a, a little comment to make about that, and that is simply this, that, that very often when we are in that place of, of worshiping as a servant, there's a bit of a false action going on. There's a there's a, you know, I'll worship you if you bless me and you, you bless my kids and, and you get them into that school or that uni or, you know, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's some of these transactions going on. And, of course, the whole sort of language of servanthood and, and showing, you know, uh, fealty, as they call it, to, to a king or a governor, there is this kind of transaction. I will protect you if you serve me, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, you know, that's not a bad thing. You know, think about people. Actually, God's risen for us and worshiping us goes beyond that. And, and I reminded you that, that, uh, that the whole idea of worship in the scriptures, in Christian worship, is, is actually helps when you remember the Greek. And the Greek has this sense of coming through to kiss. There is something very relational about kiss. There's something actually intimate about kiss. And uh, the whole business of intimacy is very much what God is looking for in the context of worship. And we're, we're, we're not now talking about slaves and sinners. We're not even talking about servants. We're talking about sons and daughters, those who climb up onto daddy's lap and hang around his neck and kiss his neck. It's an incredibly intimate and affectionate kiss. So we're following on from that kind of ground that I laid last week, and again, I commend you last week for it. And I want to sort of explore this whole business of intimacy with a living God. And I suppose as I was thinking about that, it occurred to me to ask the question, what is the, you know, what is the love language of heaven? What is the love language of heaven? Now, 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 many of you will know what I'm talking about here, but some of you may be a bit more surprised. But there's been much conversation in giving in marriage preparation and, or, or any kind of marriage kind of work. You will know that we all have a love language. 
In fact, this week we're going to try and limit how we do this class a little bit in Holiday in relation to marking it and just saying to us, you know, if you go online and there's lots of tools whereby you can find out what love language works for you. And you just tick the boxes and all the rest of it. Three minutes later, you, you, you hit a button and it tells you, you know, according to this little survey you might have done, you can just Google it, you know, love language or something like that. It tells you a number of things about yourself. So, for example, I would input things that are all important to me are quality time with my spouse, Liz, words of affirmation, acts of service, physical touch, and you can read that on your own, right? And receiving gifts, receiving gifts. Those are five things that said were important to me. And, and Chris did the same thing, and she had this list of 30 things, but she had to give the wrong one. Nicole Phillips Beardsley said, love language, what connects, you know, what expresses love differs between individuals. And sometimes we do, in, in a couple, you know, there might be a mismatch there. Somebody may think that the best way to show love to somebody is not to say, I love you, but to do the washing up. Whereas the other partner might say, well, that's boring. Why do you buy me a bunch of flowers and tell me you love me? You know, and so there's miscommunication. Nicole's love language thing was very important. I was giving gifts one time. I've always been a bit of a gift giver. And I remember when we got married, Chris and I were probably about 38 years ago now, and I made a gift to Chris. I bought him a brand new car. He cried. But Chris wasn't. In fact, it, you know, it could be apple young for you, but no, right? So I bought all that. And uh, actually, it was uh, a three-wheeler van. And uh, it was new. It was brown. And um, it was called a Reliant Robin. Anybody ever heard of a Reliant Robin? Right, it was a, a brand new Reliant Robin van. And this was my wedding gift to her. I was very excited about it myself. But, but Chris took one look at it. One look at me and burst into tears. He's thinking, what have I landed myself with? So I, that was quite an expensive mistake as far as I was concerned. You know, there was a rat in there and a boy with a blue tie that could defend himself. But I went back to school when she was wrong. And she didn't understand. I didn't go through it well enough at that time to know what her love language was. This is an important thing. It is actually, however, you know, however you work that one out, and if you are in a stable relationship with a three-year-old, you might have to kind of make a risk to have that kind of conversation. You know, what makes you feel loved, sweetheart? Have that conversation. Now, I, I translated that totally into this study that we're having about warfare, intimacy matters, expressing love to somebody. I found myself asking the question, what is the love language of heaven? What is the love language of heaven? Let me begin somewhat perversely by digging into what we call the minor prophets. In fact, going back to about 390, the last 40 years, I think, uh, it's probably beyond that, 40 years. And, and let's see what it is now, because I really think that there is a relevance to worship today. So we're going to look at Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. It'll come up on the screen. By the way, if you haven't got a Bible, not if you want to have a Bible, but if you haven't got a Bible, please don't ask for one from us. We'd love to give you one. And uh, let's just read this passage, and then I will just, in a moment, unpack it, and we'll begin to get into the action. The Lord says to his people, A son honors his father, 
he slayed from that monster. And he says, I am a father, the father of Israel. Where's the honor due me? If I'm a master, the master, the Lord of Israel, where is the respect due to me? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. So you are shown contempt for your name. Well, my answer to you is this. By offering defiled priests on my altar. Defiled? How? How have we defiled you? The Lord responds by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. Not important. <laughs> Let's disregard it. You see, when you offer blind animals for sacrifice, isn't that wrong? Any sacrifice, lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor, your boss. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now you can read the rest of that chapter and the Lord waxes lyrical as he goes over that on this theme, but essentially you've got the drift of what's happened here. Worship in those days was based on the temple in Jerusalem being a sacrificial form of worship. There were many prescribed ways of worshiping, formal or religious, and you brought an offering, usually tied to a bone and wood stalk or tablet creature, anything from a, a pair of doves right through to a, an ox or something like that, given your circumstances, but also the nature of the, of the petition and worship that you were bringing to God. Now, needless to say, as many of you know, there's already quite a trade that built up in these sacrificial animals, but people took shortcuts. Many people offered acceptable worship, but people took shortcuts. And there were some people who were beginning to say, oh, gosh, it was funny at dinner, they were worshipping, you know, with a lamb, lamb, all that. Oh, look, that one's got a bit of a lamb, and even beans are getting to it. And so instead of offering God the best, something that really cost what was happening is that people were taking shortcuts and being a bit strict of and, uh, you know, trying to sort of get away with the pretense of religion, but actually it wasn't really costing them anything. And what made it worse was that the, the priests began to collude in this. Instead of instructing and teaching the people, saying, that's blood, surely. In fact, they accepted those things. But then all you could say, you've just got a bit of a beef. You've got something going on here. And he challenges his people. They felt pressure. Come on now. I'm the Lord God of Israel that delivered you from Israel, from Egypt. And you bring me a half-blind, sick animal and think that that's going to be good news? Please, get real. So there was something going on there. And essentially what was going on was that this worship was costing them. It was costing the people nothing. They were just going through the motions, going through the formulas. And herein lies a, a clue, an important clue. And now let's go to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, which summarizes essentially in, in the main point the verses we have here. And it's this. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. This is Paul, the apostle, teaching the Roman church. And he says, listen, guys, I urge you, Brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of all that God has done and is doing, to offer your bodies. 
you see how often you are going to be dead and be lost there. And so for us, it's not just that we need to get some things done. We actually believe that part of our work here is to care for one another. I don't know whether Ted and Mom and the children came to Genasi, whether we were doing lunch or not in the Ted Smith Breakfast Group or the Master Class or all of that.
just a declaration. We provide the love language, the telepath, as an opportunity to worship Him as a living sacrifice. Our worship is consciousness. We have to be centered in our natural mind. This is a myth of nothing but self-taught worship and then once the worship is taught,
that all that is seen and unseen, all that has been, all that is to come, gathers around the throne of God in that great dance of worship of heaven. Isn't it extraordinary to know that the one we worship became a servant? What an honor. We didn't even deserve it.